1 Corinthians 13, 6 is the, the one verse we're going to look at here. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in truth. In regards to that verse, let me read you um, a couple of uh, my favorite kind of uh, commentaries and authors, uh, what they said about this in brief. Um, I like John Wesley's commentary. He said this, um, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, does not delight in evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, would be the King James and some of the other translations. It weeps at either the sin or folly of even an enemy, and it takes no pleasure in hearing or in repeating it, but desires that it may be forgotten forever, rejoices in the truth, it brings forth its proper fruit, holiness of heart and life, good in general is its glory and joy wherever diffused in all the world. Isn't it true? Good diffused in the world is amazing. When you see evil diffused in the world like we have this week, it's pretty sobering, isn't it? And it's anything but joy producing. A.T. Robertson's word pictures, he does a lot with... Uh, the language and the words, and I like him. Um, he says of rejoicing not in unrighteousness. He says Romans one thirty two shows us the depths of this degradation. Degradation. So let me read Romans one thirty two to you. It says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these things, but they also approve of those who practice them. He says there are people as low as that whose real joy is in the triumph of evil. There are people who like movies where the good guys don't win. Who really literally want evil to triumph. But rejoiceth in the truth, the other side of that. Truth um, personified here is the opposite of unrighteousness. And he gives a couple of verses there that you can look at. But he says, love is on the side of angels. Paul returns here to the positive side of the picture. After these whole list of remarkable negatives that he puts together that we've looked at. This power of unrighteousness is in the lie. Um, they get to the place that they are at by believing lies. And essentially that is the enemy's number one weapon against us. We've gone over that before. And then I'll end the commentary review here with one more. And then uh, we'll go from there. But to give you a feel for what they're saying about this passage. And my wife is going good finally. 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 6, again, rejoiceth, rejoiceth not in iniquity at unrighteousness. The pulpit commentary says this, the rejoicing at sin, the taking pleasure in them that commit sin, the exaltation over the fall of others into sin are among the worst of malignity. 
He said that there is a word in the Greek to describe this rejoicing at evil, uh, kind of a malignant joy. And then he ends it this way by a quote. He said, it is the detestable feeling indicated by this quote or remark that there is something not altogether disagreeable in us or to us in the misfortune of our best friend. I like that. There is not something altogether disagreeable to us in the misfortune of our best friend. That's not love. Love gets to a place where it rejoices in the truth. If you're gloating over the fall of your enemy, you're in a bad place. If sin around you doesn't grieve you, you're in a bad place. And it never works well for us if we step into any place other than that. Look at Proverbs 24, 17. And I'm really messing up your order this morning, Michael. I'm sorry. Do not rejoice with your, when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it and it displease him. The Lord, the Lord doesn't operate that way. And the testimony of Scripture bears that through. I thought about some biblical illustrations that pointed to this. If you look in Judges, the 16th chapter, you'll see there the story of Samson. Samson was in one of those situations where he'd, he'd had a bad haircut. You ever had one of those? And it landed him in a mess. Rich is bald. He says, no, never had one of those. Okay. Um, and in that situation, you know the story. Uh, the Philistines were able to overpower him, overpower their enemy, and they poked out his eyes. They made him a donkey grinding around with a millstone. They laughed at Samson, and they made sport of Samson. And on one particular occasion in Judges 16, they were gloating over the fall of their enemy again. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison and he performed for them. And when they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, put me where I can fill the pillar and then support the, the, the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. And now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. And then since Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me, O Lord, please strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then Samson reached toward the two center pillars on which the temple stood. And bracing himself against in his, his right hand on one and his left on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on all the rulers and all the people. Thus, he killed many more when he died than while he lived. If they'd not been gloating over Samson that day, they would not have fallen to that demise, would they? But they wanted to make sport of their enemy. And in the midst of that, it was their destruction. 
I think the testimony of Scripture over and over and over is this is consistent with God's nature and character. There are so many applications that I could make of that right now. But I won't. Those who have eyes to see and ears to hear will, and those who don't won't. Second Samuel 16, 5, as David approached Baharum, a man from the clan of Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. And as he cursed Shimei, and that's the English pronunciation of that. If you were going to do it in Greek, it would be Shimei, which we, sh I don't know, Shimei, yeah, whatever. Get out, get out, you man of blood. I just never liked Shimei, you know? It's just so weird. It sounds, Shimei sounds more like a real name, you know? So anyway, um, get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul. In whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. And you have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. What had happened that brought David to that place? Do you remember the story? David's household had fallen apart. With a daughter and a son. And uh, Absalom, the brother of the daughter who had been molested in that home, took up that offense. And uh, Absalom did something about it. He killed the son of David who had, uh, who had molested the daughter. And uh, David, as he dealt with that in his household, brought all kinds of division. And... Uh, all of this uh, was a result, according to the prophet, of David's sin with Bathsheba. Killing her husband and then doing what he did and taking her and married her. And the prophet said, there's going to be turmoil that comes into your home and it's never going to quit. And you're going to have... He, he had several predictions there. We're watching the turmoil then that came into David's home. And in the midst of this, you need to remind yourself somewhere, as all this is falling out, that David is also given a word in Scripture about the person that he is, and the person that he is is a man after God's own heart. Lest we make our judgments too rashly. And as you look at this passage of Scripture, as the consequences are falling out for David, and he runs from his son Absalom, who is coming on the throne, and Indeed, everything that the prophet said is coming true as Absalom takes David's wives, you know, in a public way on, uh, on top of the palace there. You see all of this unfolding and David now is receiving with humility what God is bringing his way, knowing that he messed up. And that's a man after God's own heart. And somebody is cursing him on the way out. Now, is this a legitimate curse? Had David really been responsible for the household, the bloodshed in the household of Saul? Well, as I, as I reviewed this in my own mind, I remember several times that David had the opportunity to kill Saul and didn't do it. 
And I thought, well, was there ever a time this happened? Well, yeah, later on, maybe. I mean, he turned Saul's seven of Saul's sons over to uh, the Gibeonites, remember, because of the drought that was in the land. And when he went to the Lord about it, it was because of the annihilation that Saul had tried to do with these people the Lord did not approve of because of the treaty that they had made with them. And, and so uh, David said, what can I do to make this right? And he handed over seven sons and they were killed. But that was after this. And so as I look at this, I go, mm, you know, I can see how if I was of the household of Saul and that had been taken from my clan, my side of the family by David, I might see that as his problem, but David really wasn't the one that did that. In fact, he showed mercy to Mephibosheth and he was about as tight with Jonathan as anybody could have been. And he grieved and wept over the destruction of the king of Israel when Saul finally died. But in this situation, he trusted that God in his sovereign will was a part of what was coming his way. And he just let this go. And so this guy, as David is down, on his way out, is blasting David. And how'd that work out for him? God loves it when we blast those people on their way down. He absolutely loves it when we exalt ourselves in a way to condemn these folks, right? If you don't understand satire, you're not listening this morning. Shimei ended up, or Shimei, she ended up in the time of in the time of uh, of Solomon, having to deal with what he had done, and Solomon said to him, "This is the deal: you don't leave the city. You're not going to be destroyed, but you don't leave the city." And he said, "That sounds good to me." But then he lost some animals or slave. I can't remember what it was. He went after him, left the city, and he ended up dead. Listen, we're most godlike. Times when we forgive and rejoice not in unrighteousness. It should grieve us. You know, God does not rejoice in the lostness. Of those who make him make themselves his enemies. Matter of fact, he delays his coming because he says it says in the scripture that he is not willing that any should perish. So he's holding out and he's waiting, hoping that folks will turn from evil and respond to his love and come to him as Lord and Savior. When he walked into Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem because of the lostness of those people there and their inability to receive him as he was. You see, if we could see the world from our Lord's perspective, we would know that there is a place. Let me give you a scripture or two. We would know that there is a place that you and I don't want to go. In Matthew 25, 41, it says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from ye, me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There is a place that is prepared for the devil and his angels. 
that we might well find ourselves in someday if we don't get the relationship with the Heavenly Father right. In Matthew 21 or 721, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoer. Does he know you? Do you know him? There is an eternal place that we want to miss called hell. And the only way to miss that place is to have a relationship with God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one who is able to forgive sin. Period. And Jesus knew this. To him, it was something that, like us, you say, well, you have to believe. No, he knew this. He came from the Father. He knew what the Father was doing. He had insight that you and I don't have. We've got his testimony, and you either choose to believe that testimony or not. You either make him the Son of God that he is, or you reduce him to something else. How would you feel if you were the son of God, knowing what was awaiting that person? He's going to offend again. He's not going to turn. This is who he's going to be. This is how he's going to relate to my son. And this is what's coming. Is there any rejoicing in that with our heavenly father? None. He wants all to come to him and none to perish. What more could he have done? The love that God wanted to bestow upon us. The abundant life he wants us to have. The ability to rejoice in good and live in good. That he wants to pour out on us. We reject and we continue to reject him and this as a nation. And he sent a son to die on a cross for our sins. To pay the price that you and I owed. So that we could be set in a right relationship with the Heavenly Father. And people don't receive it. Folks, it's a battle for truth. Is this true? Is there an eternal heaven? Is there an eternal hell? Is there a savior that can change your soul's course so that it no longer will spend eternity in hell, but its eternity will be spent in a heaven so that he will walk with you in a way in the present that is so real and so personal that as we talked about in our prayer time this morning, it can change everything. Abundant life and eternal life. Is that real or not? You have to decide whether you're going to embrace it, whether you're going to step into this truth, or whether you're going to listen to something else of the world. And according to this book, everything but this book is a lie of the enemy. 
What's your source of truth? I talk to people again this week. I talk to people all the time. That just don't believe the Bible is a source of truth. And we're in, we're in trouble as a country. And we're in trouble as a people. And we're suffering a lot of tragedy. That should cause us great grief. And should not cause us the kind of division that it's causing in our country right now. What it should cause us to do is to realize that we have rejected our God. And that we have turned our backs on His truth. And come back to the only answer that is the answer. And that's Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for Jesus. Because with that, we have a truth we can rejoice in. We don't rejoice in evil, Lord. We rejoice in the truth. And what truth brings into our lives. The hope it brings into our lives. The love that your truth brings into our lives. The presence that your truth brings into our lives. The restoration that your truth brings into our lives. What is hopeless, Lord, you can speak to and cause hope to flourish. And we choose to be the people who will live in your truth. And rejoice in it. And to not jump on the back of iniquity. And rejoice. Mm -hmm. At the demise of those who have rejected you. Thank you. Jesus. For your grace that now defines us. And your love that holds us. Amen.